much for it. I'm excited to be here. It's the first time I've um, been able to speak at this series, and so I really appreciate y'all having me. Um, I definitely am open to you know conversation, discussion, questions. The slides, you know, are pretty concrete, basic information, and I realize that a lot of you um, present have fairly extensive experience working with mental health crises and and also with children. So I'm happy to talk more about. Too. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, my name is Christina Sauer. I work with Dr. Martin and um, over at the University of New Mexico, and work primarily in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and tend to focus more on some of the um, emergency child services there. Let's see. Is it down? Sorry. I don't know why it does this sometimes. Oh, okay. Okay. All right, so these are some of the learning objectives for today that um, were provided beforehand. So the first is that I hope through the talk that people here afterwards will be able to identify some of the common mental health crises that we most commonly see experienced by youth. Um, consider interventions that might be most appropriate and effective for this age group. And then gain familiar, familiarity with some local resources that can meet the needs of children and families in mental health crises. So the structure for today, um, I'm just going to start with a little bit of background on some of the common tenets to providing mental health care for children and youth, and then revisit some of the common locations that we intersect, assess, and provide care for children and adolescents. Um, talk about some of the common crises we see encountered and some different intervention strategies. And then I think just to consider more about you know, what are the, the goals and the outcomes of providing more targeted evaluations and interventions for youth? What does that really achieve? Um, and then talk about some of the local resources and supports that we have for children and adolescents here in Albuquerque. Okay, so I just wanted to start with a case example. This is um, an adolescent who I actually had on the inpatient unit not too long ago and just wanted to think about, you know, some of the places that many of you on the phone may be intersecting with, with youth in crises. So this was um, this individual, his intersection with the law enforcement system and with mental health started when his mom made a call to 911 from home because he was um, in an altercation with his stepfather, um, physically attacking him with a screwdriver and threatening to kill him. So mom was, of course, very upset and um, frightened and made the call. Um, you know, this, this adolescent had no other legal history before as far as charges, and um, mom was concerned that he was intoxicated with some substance based on his behavior. And there's not e there wasn't easy access to firearms at home, but he clearly had this screwdriver, and then there were, you know, multiple kitchen knives um, and some other potential weapons in the home. So, um, you know, just thinking and how we might approach or how you all might approach a situation like this in considering what's the child's history, what's happening in the situation, you know, how would we best de-escalate this? Um, and especially taking kind of like a mental health perspective as to, you know, what, um, what kind of mental health concerns does the, does the adolescent have? And then, you know, once you're there and intervening, where it might be most appropriate to, to transport this child for further evaluation. So that's what we'll talk about today. 
Okay, so I think most folks here recognize, you know, what we consider mental health to be, but I wanted to focus, mental health care to be, but I wanted to focus a little bit on who is considered a child in, in the mental health care system. So from a legal perspective, generally we think of youth, and youth up to the age of 18, so under 18 as being a child, and then once someone turns 18 and above, they're an adult in the system. So this also includes for inpatient psychiatric care and services. But there is a bit of a gray zone. So children may be considered um, within the umbrella of a mental health system that serves youth when they go up to the age of 25. And we recognize there's a lot of kids in high school who are over 18, um, children with developmental delays, young adults with developmental delays that are better served by children's um, mental health services than adults. And so um, I think that's one thing to consider going into it. The other piece when we're working with children in, especially in crisis, that may be a little different than um, adults is are some of these challenges. So um, developmentally, we recognize there's a pretty significant difference interacting with a six or a seven-year-old than there is a 13 or 14-year-old. Um, just as far as their understanding of safety and what it means to have significant thoughts of harming themselves or someone else, um, and what the concept of suicide or death means as far as permanence and um, you know what kind of, of harm they inflict as a result. Um, there's some complex systems I think folks recognize when we're dealing with a child, it's usually not just the child, it's also their family, which may uh, be more dysregulated or more have more challenge or more have more challenges than the child, um, and then sometimes school systems and other bigger systems are involved. Along the lines of the developmental piece, assessing symptoms with children can be a little bit more complicated. So for example, how you really get a sense as to you know, how serious are they about harming themselves um, and what is their intent behind that. And then I think we generally, with interventions, really want to be mindful about the risks posed by an intervention when we're dealing with a vulnerable youth, but also recognizing that we tend to have a lower threshold for providing intervention if it will ensure safety for the child and their family. The other piece, and I know we have at least someone from out of state on the line, but um, with regards to rights and um, legal capacity that children have, so we do consider them to be a vulnerable population, just like geriatric or other developmentally delayed intellectually disabled individuals. But in the state of New Mexico, at the age of 14, children may consent for their own mental health care, um, own mental health treatment. So this varies state by state. It's, it's not consistent across the board. But what this means is that a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old um, can provide consent to take medications. They can provide consent to be admitted to the hospital. And so that can cause some uh, potential conflicts or complications when moving forward with treatment, especially if you have a child and guardian or a child and parent who are on different pages. And then at the same time, there's some things with confidentiality that we consider. So if a 15-year-old adolescent is um, telling us about different parts of their life and treatment modalities they wish to pursue. If they ask us as mental health care providers to not disclose that to their parents, in many cases we're bound to confidentiality in that um, situation. 
And certainly if, if there's imminent risk of safety concern, then you know there's different reasons why we breach that confidentiality. But but there is this bit of gray zone where you know young children I think we consider to be really directly under the care of their guardian, but as they become later in adolescence, as they develop it later into adolescence, they gain rights that sometimes can complicate some of what we're able to do from a mental health care perspective. So question about yeah. So if we were out with somebody and they're like, I want my child to go get an eval because of statements they're making on Facebook, but they're 15, yeah. you can't, that's not a guarantee eval. So from, from the treating provider's perspective, yeah, we would ideally need the 15-year-old to be in consent. But I think it depends, again, on what the safety risks are. So if the parent has legitimate concerns that you as an intervening provider agree with, then I think in those situations, most folks would err on the side of caution that you know, it makes the most sense to bring them in. Um, but if it seems to be sort of a he said, she said argument and the actual safety concerns seem relatively minimal, then I think we do have to pay attention to the fact that the children can consent for their own care. Um, and, and treatment. And then I'm, I'm not sure if you're going to speak about it later, yeah. but if not, about asking about suicide. What are phrases that are used in youth that we may not see in the adult? Because for the most part, we majorly deal with adults. Right. So every now and then, especially we have some school resource officers on here, and so they might experience more with youth, but it seems like parents typically are taking them in before it gets to law enforcement. But what are some phrases that they use about suicide that are, are different. different. Yeah. So I think that that's a really good question. Often you'll hear children say things like, I just wish I was dead. I wish I could die. Um, you know, they, they may sort of trend along. I see adolescents who there's like different phrases that are popular within their subgroup at school or, you know, with people they watch on YouTube that um, have different ways of referencing thoughts about suicide. But I think it's still similar terminology. A lot of it is, you know, is it being made in a context like a child has their video game taken away and they say, I just want to kill myself if I can't have the video game, you know, how... Take them immediately. <laughs> for, for dysregulated responsiveness to parental discipline. Um, yeah, I think, I think that the question about um, comments like, I want to die and I want to kill myself, the, the curiosity there is what do they really mean by that and how serious are they about it? And same thing when they make those threats. Because I think we see a lot of children who have learned from one means or another that that's a good way to get something they want. And so they may use that terminology when they don't necessarily mean it, but it still elicits a lot of concern and fear in folks around them. So I think we just try to be careful in how we like decipher what the comments are intended to mean. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. So just one more piece then on the children's rights. So while so the, the child has some legal rights, um, and I see the comment there that, yeah, it, it does seem pretty young when you think about cognitively how much a 14-year-old can understand. It's not a, an absolute black or white like it is with an 18-year-old where we consider them to be an adult and pretty much you know, at that point, their own guardian. So the child has some rights, they can make decisions, but again, if the guardian has um, other views or perspectives that, you know, a treating provider or um, a school counselor or law enforcement that, you know, if people are 
are seeing that the child is at risk and a parent feels so, and there's a difference in decision, then generally there's still some some higher amount of you know sway or or um, I guess capacity for us to make decisions for the child that don't exist once someone becomes an adult. It's a little complicated, but we'll talk a little more on that later too. So recognizing many of you are out in the community, these are just some of the common places that we see children encounter or experience mental health crises. Very often at home, especially with conflicts with parents or siblings, and then when there's active abuse or neglect um, occurring within the school, and this is probably one reason during the school year we see a really increased volume of children who are experiencing crisis or wind up in the mental health care system because of the, the stress that's often associated with social, social experiences in school, um, especially bullying, and then some of the academic challenges that children may face. Um, sometimes schools are a place that kids are engaging in substance use together or there's truancy in behavior, and so you can see conflict arising from authority with that. In different healthcare locations, um, so from the mental health perspective, you know, we, we know there's lots of um, healthcare settings and emergency rooms that don't have much mental health uh, capacity, and so children may present to those healthcare settings, um, and then within the community, you know, whatever kids or adolescents are getting into, so whether it's gang involvement, those that are homeless or living in shelters, and again, substance using. Unfortunately, we see a lot of young children that are involved in sex trafficking and prostitution, and so we um, do see them wind up in crisis as well. And then the juvenile justice system, there's a pretty strong overlap of um, when these children you know, are, are engaging in behavior that reaches a point of conflict where there's charges involved and then a decision of, you know, do we primarily deal with that in the legal system versus the mental health care system? So just to reflect on all these different places that kids may be located or coming from in crisis, and then these are some of the you know people that are involved probably in assessing or evaluating those crises. So at home, family members, siblings at school, the teachers, school counselors, peers, coaches, just other adults that are inter interacting with the children, um, certainly medical professionals and counselors and therapists, and then Law enforcement plays a, a big role at intersecting with children that are out and about, um, as do juvenile probation officers that we work with. Okay, so that's, I think, just some you know, fairly common sense background, but I wanted to touch on, on that as far as thinking of how we intersect with youth and you know, how we can best um, intervene. So then some of the most common mental health crises for children and youth Threats of harm towards self are perhaps the most common crises. So suicidal ideation or a recent suicide attempt and then self-harm behavior like cutting um, and then harm towards others. So we see a lot of kids who are being aggressive, whether it's to peers, parents or siblings. And so they may um, you know, be seeking or needing care. We do have youth that will threaten to kill or um, have homicidal ideation towards others. And then especially with some of the recent school shootings, there's been, you know, elevated a number of children making threats at school about violent acts. And so um, often those children are referred for mental health evaluation. 
So those pieces tend to be the most common, like for adults, the imminent risk of harm to self and others. And then we see a lot of children who are putting themselves at risk of victimization. So whether that's their expensive substance use, um, if they're engaging in trafficking or prostitution, and then children that are homeless. So this category of, of children, you know, once they become adults, um, we may be less active in wanting to provide them mental health care, but when they're children, because they're vulnerable, I think we tend to take a more paternalistic attitude. And then children that are at risk of grave past and neglect, meaning they can't care for themselves, and if their environment around them isn't able to support them, um, such as those who are intoxicated, actively psychotic, or with severe mood disorders. Um, these are some of the other situations we work with extensively. Okay, and then the diagnoses formally that we look at. So anxiety disorders are the most common mental health disorder in children and youth. And then post-traumatic stress disorder. We see so many kids with a trauma history and often by virtue of the fact they've had trauma, they may still be either in vulnerable situations or because of their prior trauma, they're more vulnerable to react with um, emotional and behavioral dysregulation. Mood disorders, lots of younger kids with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, who may struggle with um, limit setting or um, being in a school setting. Children with learning disabilities or developmental delay, um, often children with autism spectrum wind up presenting to our system, um, particularly if they're not in a structured environment that's really supporting their needs and, um, you know, they're not able to advocate for what they, what they need. Children also with oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder, which are more behavioral patterns where, um, you know, they, they're either being oppositional and defiant towards authority figures or, with conduct disorder, you know, violating laws and social norms. And these are the children often in the juvenile justice system and then substance use disorders. Okay, so as that, those slides as background, then we'll just talk about some other common scenarios that we see, especially in the emergency setting arise here. So for example, a family with a 15 year old autistic son who calls 911, because the child is agitated, angry, threatening, and punching walls at home after the video games have been taken away and the family can't figure out how to calm them down safely. Um, a mother and 13-year-old daughter where the mother calls for help because the, they've become physically aggressive towards each other when the mom won't allow her daughter to leave to go do, out and do things with friends. 16-year-old um, male who's calling the crisis hotline, feeling suicidal with a plan to hang himself. And then school calls, which are becoming more frequent, but school calling EMS after two nine-year-olds become aggressive and one threatens to stab the other at school. And then school counselor calls when she learns that a 12-year-old patient has thought about um, taking a gun from home to shoot someone at school. So I think these are pretty common scenarios for children and adolescents that we see present in the emergency setting. And... Just looking statistically and nationally, we know that there's increasing number of children and families seeking care for mental health crises. And by virtue of how our system is set up, many of these children either are cared for or they present to standard emergency services, which often are not adequately equipped or trained to meet the children's needs. And like we mentioned, it's for you know common things like suicidal ideation, aggression, and um, school threats. And so hopefully by increasing education, training, and resources, we can you know, better meet the needs of these children. But again, certainly it's not just in Albuquerque. Nationally, the numbers are 
quite elevated in the past few years as far as children and families who are um, reaching out to emergency services for some of the scenario, um, similar scenarios as we've talked about. Okay. So I think that many of you will be, you know, experts at this comparatively, but when we think about how do we best need, meet the needs of children and family in crises, some of the considerations around, you know, the safety of the immediate situation, but then for children also considering um, what is the insight and the awareness of the child and the family into the dangerousness of their behaviors or the dangerousness of the situation um, certainly can help in staging intervention and then, you know, linking them with evaluation, formal evaluation. Considering if this is an acute versus a chronic condition, so I think from a mental health perspective, we see it differently if we have a child who's generally been well-behaved that all of, you know, suddenly is manifesting intense urges to harm themselves or others versus perhaps a child with autism spectrum who um, frequently has aggressive outbursts when they um, have a change in setting or perhaps um, their routine schedule. And then being aware of what available resources exist. So a lot of kids, thankfully, tend to have more services than adults. So many kids have case managers or therapists or um, other peer family supports who may be available to intervene. And so I think utilizing those known resources, whether it's through a phone call or um, you know, having them come to the situation can be of help. And then the goals, just like working with adults, I think focusing on, you know, assessment of the situation, but then different techniques for de-escalation and ensuring the safety of the, the child and the family or other people around them, connecting with the appropriate resources and stabilizing acute concerns um, are the primary tenants. And then trying to help, you know, have people in a place that they can get follow-up care that they need. So when we look at children in crises, um, I think, again, like adults, but especially when, when children may not be able to, you know, developmentally explain what they're going through um, or if they have other learning or developmental disabilities, that aggression often can, can be the manifestation of underlying emotions like fear, anxiety, if they're lacking control. Um, or is there a way to protect against vulnerability, especially if they're in dangerous situations? And many children will engage in self-harming behavior, ranging from things like cutting to more intensive ideations to die, um, you know, when their levels of depression or self-loathing are quite elevated, or if they have family or social conflict that they just can't escape. And so cutting is one way to kind of control that. Um, intense internal emotion they're experiencing. And then just thinking about some common triggers that we see children experience, you know, when they're either escalating or, or in an acute crisis. So we know that children with a trauma history may be just much more sensitive to environmental stimuli, whether that's being touched, um, hearing certain sounds, working with, you know, one gender or another, um, or authority figures. And so once we have them in a setting that it's a little easier to, you know, contain and, and make sure that they're um, safe, we often pay a lot of attention to what's the trauma history and how is that playing a role in their, in their active behaviors. And then children on the autism spectrum sometimes are much more sensitive to things like changes in schedule or routines um, than other children, and that can lead to behavioral outbursts. Children with ADHD, you know, by virtue of being hyperactive and impulsive and some of the neurobio 
biological wiring to that also tend to have low frustration tolerance. And so these kids must may be much more likely to act out in the classroom or to become aggressive. Um, and then children with oppositional defiant disorder, there's things like rules and, you know, people in authority position trying to exert control and, and those can all be triggers for those kiddos. And then probably most commonly we see a lot of children and adolescents who are manifesting you know, pretty significant behavioral issues when the family around them is in severe conflict or um, if they're kind of acting out other family patterns they've seen. Okay. So when, when you all are working with children in crisis, I know there's lots of information you're gathering about the safety of the situation and exactly what's going on, but these might be some other things to think about, especially um, you know, in intervening. So the age of the child, we generally think about how old biologically are they, but also you know, developmentally. So if you have a 15-year-old who is developmentally delayed and functions at more of the age of a six-year-old, that may influence you know, the best, most effective strategies you know, subsequently. Gender, so we know there's a lot of adolescents, especially where gender identification is important to them and can tend to be more of a trigger if they feel like that's not being respected or responded to. So we do see a lot of adolescents coming into the mental health system who identify as transgender or what they call gender fluid. Um, so that may just be something to be aware of. Certainly the acute concerns of the child in the situation, but also what their past psychiatric or medical issues are, substance use. And then perhaps one of the most important is determining when a child is in crisis, who their guardian and or family are. So we see a lot of kids um, whose family is their guardian, and I think that's often assumed, but certainly we also have a lot of children that are living with aunts or uncles or friends, and you know those adults uh, may not actually have any decision-making power for the child if they're not their guardian. And then a lot of children who are in CYFD custody, and whether that means they're living in a shelter or in a foster home, um, I think it's always helpful to identify who the guardian is as far as being able to you know, um, reinforce decisions that need legal guardianship. And then it can also be helpful just to identify prior interventions that have been helpful. So some kids may do well just with um, distraction or if there's you know, changes in environmental stimuli, such as trying to get them out of a really loud area or um, an area where there's lots of, um, you know, lots of people or lots of sound or other things that may be keeping them in a more activated state. And then the immediate stabilization as far as the safety piece and you know, considering if there's legal charges that will need to be pursued um, are also important pieces of that evaluation. And then I think as far as transportation, you know, that generally when emergency services respond, the child is transported to another site by either police or, or uh, EMS services. Um, but there may be some situations where a family is able to transport them based on generally just the acuity of the situation and how imminent a risk of harm is. And then like we talked about at the start, you know, there may be situations that um, whether it's a formal certificate of evaluation or perhaps a court order that a child's mandated to come in for evaluation versus it being a voluntary process. And so how can you make that a more... Um, you know, how can you encourage kids to come in voluntarily is another consideration. And then we'll just talk about some of the other interventions here that we look at with children as far as active interventions. So these de-escalation strategies, I think, are pretty similar to what we see in adults. Um, 
but I just wanted to, to reiterate these. And these are often talked about in school settings and, you know, with teachers or other people that work with children who have potential for behavioral outbursts. So we think about the early signs of aggression in kids where, you know, they're starting to work up physically, um, fidgeting, clenching jaw, change in speech. And so the, I think the main thing we talk about in working with kids is how can, how can people who are intervening or responding remain calm? And so having the attention to tone of voice, facial expression, and one's own breathing, we know that just like um, fear can be contagious, you know, having a, a degree of calmness in a situation can also be contagious. So we really try to, to encourage um, folks with that. And then again, recognizing that some kids may just need a little space to kind of calm down, um, that distracting them by talking about a different topic or, um, you know, diverting their attention away, sometimes especially with young kids can be really helpful. And then just this general idea about, you know, modeling behavior that you wish the child to emulate when you're with them can be, can be helpful in many situations. There's a question for you from yeah. the network asking Sorry. about it, what psychiatric help is available at the detention center. That's a really good question. So there's not an acute assessment available at the detention center. So if children are, are brought to the detention home and booked um, or booked and released and they need an acute psychiatric evaluation, then generally they're transported to one of the emergency rooms locally. Um, Dr. Mullen is the psychiatrist that is the medical director at the detention home, and so he sees youth that are um, detained there once a week with residents and other medical providers, but that again is just a scheduled once a week visit. Um, but he's always on call, and so if there's an acute issue coming up, or if a you know if a child or adolescent tries to self harm or commit suicide, then um, he's usually involved in triaging that. And sometimes those situations are also transported to the emergency settings for further evaluation um, for possible inpatient stabilization or just return to the detention home. I have a question. Yeah, you you went over these. What are, this is Neil Zerosimel. Yeah. What De-escalation techniques do you think are particularly useful in children that may not be as useful in adults? Like you mentioned diverting, things yeah. like that. Are there others? Yeah, it's a so, so great question. I think it depends a little bit. I think for young children, I think they do really well with distraction. They can do better with distraction um, and... You know, if there's different things that ground, that the family can identify that ground them. So if it's like stuffed animals or certain toys or a certain family member, I think sometimes like if they're really close to their grandfather, getting their grandfather on the phone can be really helpful. So I think with young children, those pieces, um, you know, and often I think a lot of kids, they can get very dysregulated um, for different reasons, but a lot of times it's fear. And so, you know, I think different ways to um, kind of reinforce that they're safe and then they're in a known environment can be helpful. And what would be an example of distraction? Distraction. So things that I've seen is, you know, a kid is getting really upset about, I don't know, whatever's gone on at home with mom. And so if the person intervening comes and starts talking about basketball or sport that they enjoy or, um, you know, trying to distract them to talk about something else that they're interested in, video games, you know, some topic that the kid can latch onto. Sometimes that's enough to, you know, get them out of that acutely agitated state that they can respond better to other redirection. 
uh, I think with adolescents, it's a little bit more similar to um, a techniques we use for adults. Um, but again, I think just trying to figure out, you know, if there are certain things that the family knows that work for them, that can be, um, that can also be a helpful go-to. Great. Thank you. There's different phrases as well that from de-escalation de techniques, and I don't know that these are different than, um, than adults, but um, I think working, you know, if a child is especially say they have an underlying kind of oppositional defiant pattern of behavior. Um, I think telling them what you want them to do rather than what you don't want them to do can be effective. Um, and giving suggestions like let's try and maybe we can, you know, again, if you have time and space to do some of these things, uh, I think children can hear them in a way they're more apt to respond favorably. And then I think for all of us, it's you know hard to not necessarily take things personally, um, or sometimes start responding with our own heightened sense of agitation in these situations. Um, so just having the mindfulness about that. Okay. And then I wanted to point this out. So this is more what a lot of the uh, mental health technicians that work with children are trained in. But there's different crisis intervention strategies for. Um, both de-escalation, but also like hands-on physical holds for children. So the Crisis Prevention Institute is um, what a lot of mental health hospitals for children train their employees in. And um, if you go and surf around their website, it actually has quite a bit of information and then, you know, class offerings. But it's basically looking at how can we train providers in, in a way that's the safest, most respectable, and non-invasive way to manage disruptor disruptive and assaultive behavior. And so I think what we see like with some young kids is even just being, if they can just be held, you know, if someone gives them either a hug or some sort of physical hold for some period of time, that's often enough to de-escalate them when they're quite agitated. Um, but recognizing there's different ways that we look at physical holds and transport when children are acutely dysregulated. Um, and so this institute focuses on, on that piece. Um, and I think everything, most other things on this slide I've talked about, but recognizing too the role of separation that some um, children will do best when they're separated from the acute separate of situation, whether it's at school, if it's peers that have been agitating them, or if it's a child in a family that's sometimes just separating them from for a while can you know provide significant um, calm to the situation. Okay, and then so looking at when we refer when when y'all are involved in assessing and intervening on the scene and then when children are taking into more formal mental health centers so the when we have a child who has an acute crisis with an imminent risk of harm to self or others like some of the scenarios i mentioned earlier most often those children are taken to emergency rooms um, whether it's medical or psychiatric and a couple of pieces that are worth just knowing about it's usually a guardian needs to be present with those children so you know if you're on a scene and the 16 year old is transported in for evaluation the hospital will almost always be calling the guardian to be present so um you know we encourage them to be a part of the evaluation as far as decision making um and certainly this is you know the highest level of acute stabilization but as we talk about at unm sometimes bringing kids into the emergency rooms who are not in acute crisis can also pose some risk to them because they're around a lot of other very ill um, adults. 
And so when there's a less imminent risk um, of harm to self or others, but the child and the family need evaluation and support, there's other centers. So the New Mexico Crisis Line can be really helpful for families and children to be connected to as far as um, a su ongoing support, but also being able to provide them with resources. And um, often these children wind up in urgent care as in emergency settings, but, but um, there's other community agencies and sometimes the networks in the school that can provide evaluation. And so I think just being aware of what a child already has in place, if there's an opportunity to maximize those services or for them to reconnect quickly with their therapist or provider, and then um, you know working with the family to figure out what they feel like is a safe follow-up from a, a crisis is pretty, um, pretty meaningful. And for us locally, yeah. would you want us to take the child to the emergency room at UNM? Yeah. Or do they go to the, uh, psych the psychiatric emergency services? That's a good question. I think that both places wind up getting really busy and often overwhelmed with volume. Um, I think that, you know, the younger kids, like under the age of 10 or 12, sometimes do better in the pediatric emergency room just because it's pretty child friendly and they have TVs and things on the walls and, you know, they're less vulnerable to um, the influence of uh, ill and psychotic adults around them. But, you know, especially, um, adolescents or adolescents who are effectively within the adult range based on their behaviors. I think either place, sometimes a psychiatric emergency room can be more appropriate. Um, yeah, so I tend to divert that based on age and then maybe just, you know, any other, if there's any other medical concerns, certainly the medical room, the medical emergency room. Then there's a question on the network. Does there seem to be any kind of conflict between the issues of a child making their own decisions at 14 or older and then also having their parents present. Yeah, yeah, that does seem conflictual at a, a basic level. I think that um, because of the fact that the child is not the, they're not the only ones making the decisions, they have rights at that age, but the guardian is, you know, actively involved in making, making the decision with the team and with the child. And so um, we also don't, uh, we also don't want to have a, a youth who's under 18 um, alone in an emergency setting, ideally, you know, where there's, um, I guess, a lot of different treatment decisions being made. And, uh, you know, we want the family, I think, also to be accountable for what's happening at that point in time. Yeah. Uh, Lawrence Savage with APD, I have a question. If I understand that they have rights um, to make their own decisions. How much can you share with the adult the parent that's there, though? As far, I mean, is there any restriction of what you will share with them and what you won't yeah. um, until they're 18? That's a really good question. So it becomes legally complicated in different situations. But in an emergency setting, usually that's a place where for both children and adults, I think confidentiality is not, um, you know, there's probably a different level of confidentiality that we feel we have to adhere to. And so um, if it's an emergent situation and, you know, we're either making emergency evaluations or having to make a decision about what's the most safe discharge plan, in that case, um, you know, usually we feel that the risk of harm by um, completely adhering to their confidentiality outweighs the risk of breaching potentially some of the confidentiality to ensure a safe discharge plan. So I guess what I would say is that usually we're more apt to share information with families or guardians in the emergency setting. Um, I think that it, it does vary based on the content. So we may have kids that come in and, you know, they're 
they're having thoughts about stabbing their stepfather, right? Like that piece, even if they tell us they don't want us to tell their family, certainly we will. But if they also say simultaneously, I'm sexually active and I might be pregnant, if they don't want their families to know that, then I think we see that as a piece that we don't necessarily feel like we have to break confidentiality on. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I think it just depends a lot on the situation, but, but we do recognize in the state that it gives kids a little bit more um, you know, power in their treatment decisions to have those legal rights. Jeff Lowers with CPD. Um, what about like diagnoses? I've yeah. had parents tell me that they've been to a doctor, but they haven't been able to get them a diagnosis. Right. But then the child goes and tells me I've been diagnosed with this. Yeah. Does, is that the same type of thing or? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think usually um, in medical settings, they, you know, there's a goal to be collaborative and for the families to be aware of pieces like diagnoses. And generally also if the parent's insurance is covering the child, you know, that information may be available at some point. Um, so that I think maybe more, I would guess more a mix of um, either interpretation of information or the other piece we see is that there are school-based clinics in the town where kids, you know, go to go to see providers during the day without parents present. And in those situations, they may be receiving diagnoses that the parents aren't told about. Um, so that's another place that there's that discrepancy. One more thing, Dad. When, when uh, Lawrence Savage with Amy, when I was working as a school resource officer within the schools, if there was a suicidal a threat that a student made, they contract, contracted out with Southwest families. Right. So they would send them there right. to be to have that first evaluation. And if something came from that, then there may be a transport to a right. psych emergency. Is, right. is that still in place? That was like. Yeah, we were just talking about this. So as far as we know, the contract still exists, but it's with APS only. So non, you know, the, some of the schools that are not within the APS domain don't have that same contract. Kids are outside of APS, so in Rio Rancho or other places that doesn't apply either. And then I think that, I mean, that, that contract is in place, but we certainly see other kids coming in who don't, who seem to bypass Southwest. And I think that's a piece we realize we need to, you know, get a clear understanding of um, some of the protocols different schools follow, like how tightly they're adhering to that or not. Um, but, I, you know, I think certainly there's some hope within the system that we can develop better capacity to triage kids who are in the school um, with mental health clinicians to determine if they all need to come, you know, to an emergency setting or like more effective ways to triage levels of concern out of schools so that, you know, we can best meet the needs of the kids at the level of care they need. I think at the time, if there was a threat, they yeah. had to be evaluated somewhere before they could be allowed back onto the school grounds. Right, right. And then yeah. the threat assessment was done by APS type counselors yeah. and teachers and principal staff yeah. to see how they how they were integrated back. But that was a while back, so I don't know if that's still in place. I think some of it's shifted. But I think, and we talked about maybe doing another talk down the road more just on school threats and assessing school threats since that's, you know, nationally such a popular topic right now. Okay. So I don't have too much more. Um, the other pieces that I just wanted to bring up from this slide. So 
I know that police or law enforcement will often contact CYFD if there's a situation of concern about abuse or neglect, you know, that they're actively involved with. Just to reiterate that we, we often may do that from the mental health side too. Um, and so often there's collaboration with CYFD when children are in acute crisis. Um, and that just like adults, you know, if a child is determined to need inpatient or inpatient stabilization after an evaluation, say that it's a 15 year old who doesn't want to be admitted because they think they're doing fine and their family is concerned about their safety and the healthcare providers are concerned about their safety, then again, we can admit them on a hold just like we did with adults. So children go on the same length of time for an involuntary hold. So it's a seven day hold on admission um, for further evaluation and stabilization. And then um, substance use. We see so many teenagers that are actively using substances, and unfortunately, we're just really limited in what's available for them here in New Mexico. We don't have places like Mats or Turquoise Lodge for teenagers at this point, so we have kind of limited outpatient services for those using substances. Um, so that is... Yeah, this is just a recap of some of the local services. I didn't list all the agencies. I'd be happy to provide a list of different contacts, but I think by and large, you know, in the field, the connection with the emergency rooms at this point in time is the most consistent connection. Um, but at the bottom, again, I think it's just worth being mindful of who else is currently involved with the child from a behavioral health care standpoint. And then I think with time, we hope we can expand some of the community crisis services we have here. A lot of communities nationally have gone to more mobile crisis units where there's mental health teams that respond to youth in crisis. We mentioned the triage hotlines. Um, some places that have things like an ACT team for uh, adolescents as well. And then just continuing to expand some of the training and education we provide for you all and other people that are out in the field here working with children. And then again, the more we can help build CYFD resources as a state, um, I think for child protection and other youth services, that'll be really valuable for approaching some of these situations. Mm -hmm.